Welcome back. It's been a little less than a year since I-75 saw one of the worst traffic crashes ever reported in Florida's history. A pileup on the stretch of interstate that crosses Payne's Prairie on January 29th resulted in 11 deaths and the closure of the interstate for more than six hours. The cause of the accident was attributed to a to a blinding buildup of smoke from a 60-acre brush fire in Payne's Prairie. Santa Fe College student Christian Ewan was driving home in the wee hours of that Sunday morning. She never made it. She and uh, a good friend of hers were driving on I-75 when the fatal crash occurred, uh, killing her instantly, uh, leaving uh, her six-year-old son without a mother. Nguyen's attorney, Daniel Glassman, has been working on that case. We're fighting for the right of this six-year-old boy to be fairly and fully compensated for the greatest loss, and that's the loss of his mother. Um, Basically, this is an accident that could and should have been avoided. So far, the case remains open. There have been some resolutions with uh, certain uh, certain parties, but there are several outstanding claims, uh, including claims against the state of Florida, which have not been resolved. But Attorney Glassman says he's not done fighting. There were uh, errors by the state of Florida, by law enforcement, by the Florida Department of, uh, of Law Enforcement, <laughs> excuse me, um, for a failure to appropriately maintain the closure of the roads when they knew or should have known that they were not safe. A report issued by the FDLE following the crash pointed out a number of communication problems among the Florida Highway Patrol, Department of Transportation, and the Forestry Service in the hours before and after the I-75 pileup. Despite the many months that have gone by since the tragedy, Glassman says he believes there hasn't been enough done to ensure this sort of accident will never happen again. I, I think we're only, a, we're, we're only a bad weather day away from, from seeing it happen occur again. And attorney Daniel Glassman isn't the only one willing to take a stand for increased I-75 safety precautions. Representative Keith Perry has been pushing for a proposal all year that will install both warning signs and traffic cameras around the area. And now the money for the project has finally been approved and appropriated. He says it's been a slow journey, but a necessary one. We're not happy with the time frame, and it, it certainly has taken a long time to get this done. But, but one of the, at least on the, the bright side, is that the, the study was, was very intensive, not just on area of concern and danger, but also how to mitigate any uh, potential future problems and, and then come up with a plan of how do you uh, solve that. And now Representative Perry says it's only a matter of months until drivers will start to see improvements along these major roadways. What you'll see in the end is a pretty intensive uh, information system, which will be real-time, so they'll be able to update these signs from, uh, from a remote area, any place. So, so DOT will have access. Uh, you know, they gained uh, Lachua County Sheriff's Department, the Highway Patrol. Um, so this, if any information that comes back will be real-time updated. Perry says two electronic signs will be posted in the Alachua County area, one near the Micanopy exit and one closer to Williston Road. He estimates about 12 traffic cameras will be installed, which he says will help facilitate communication during emergencies as well. And these will be these big informational signs that you see in other places in the state uh, that will um, you know, be able to alert the, the, you know, the travelers. And so if we have an issue where we need to close the interstate down or detour traffic, uh, it'll be in a position suitable for doing that. The new system will also have weather monitors and provide notifications of atmospheric condition changes in the area.
I think it's going to be a really good system from a highway safety uh, standpoint and protecting uh, the travelers along the interstate there. So, um, so we're you know we're we're not excited that it's taken so long, but but I'm glad that the process has um, has been pretty exhaustive, and um, and I think it's going to be a good system when we get it up and running. The Florida Department of Transportation says construction on the project will begin no later than a year from now. The 2012 general election was marred by long lines and voter confusion in many Florida's counties. As Jessica Palomo reports, yesterday the legislature's ethics and election committees started considering how to improve the voting experience for all Floridians. The Ethics and Elections Committees were appointed this year after Senate President Don Gates and House Speaker Will Weatherford said reform in those areas was a priority. Vice Chair of the Senate Committee, Hollywood Democrat Eleanor Sobel, said committee members really care about making sure every vote gets counted. All of us, especially who run for elections, so that's our charge to make sure that the votes are counted and they're counted on time and everyone has the right to vote. Secretary of State Ken Detzner testified he's planning to interview election supervisors in the five counties that had the most problems on Election Day. They're Lee, Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach, and St. Lucie. He says he'll be examining whether the problems resulted from state policies or from the supervisors themselves. You can have the best laws in America, but if you don't have the appropriate administration and the foresight to plan and use good judgment, the laws don't do you any good. Overall, Detzner says he's happy with the state's performance. He pointed out a record number of people voted before Election Day, either absentee or in person, but only one county, St. Lucie, didn't count its ballots by the deadline. And compared with other states... Florida has good election laws. We have high standards for voting here in Florida. Keep in mind, almost half of the other states don't even allow early voting. According to the Florida State Department, this time around, the number of people who voted early increased by more than 93,000 since 2008. Detzner said the number one factor causing long lines was the length of the ballot. Senate Ethics and Elections Committee Chairman Jack Latvala pointed out this year's ballot had 11 constitutional amendments, while ballots from the previous five elections had a combined total of 17 amendments. And if you ask election supervisors what they see as the number one problem... For a number of years, we have come to the legislature and asked for flexibility with respect to early voting sites. That's Ron Labaski with the State Association of Election Supervisors. He said places other than libraries, city halls, and supervisors' offices should be allowed to be used as early voting sites. State Department data shows per capita Duval County had the most early voting sites open, while Pinellas had the fewest. And in Miami-Dade, where some of the longest lines were reported, the supervisor opened only 20 of about 85 potential early voting sites. Orlando Republican Senator Andy Gardner said, although each election supervisor is independently elected, maybe the state needs to have more recourse when things go wrong. I'm all for independence and local control. But I hope at some point your office and this committee will look at, at what point is there an intervention? If we become, it becomes so apparent that a county has not made the appropriate decisions or the ballots were sent out wrong. The Senate Ethics and Elections Committee is asking election supervisors in the five underperforming counties to testify next month. And Secretary Detzner plans to report his findings to Governor Scott in January as well. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Jessica Palumbo. And for more on the impacts and implications of the probe into the elections, I spoke with University of South Florida, Florida political science professor Susan McManus. 
She says this investigation will be very important for the public and both political parties. And now, can you tell me a little bit about your thoughts on the Senate and the House meetings on the election? Very important issue. The public does not want another repeat of 2000 or 2012. It's incumbent on both parties to sit down and fix the problem with Florida's election system as soon as possible, because there's nothing worse than people having a lack of confidence that their vote's going to count. Because after all, in a democracy, your vote is the most important thing that you have. And now some of the counties that were pinpointed were Broward, Lee, Miami-Dade, Palm Beach, and St. Lucie. What could these counties have done any better? They're going to have to sit down and really look at why they had long lines and why they had problems with their ballots. And it looks like there are different reasons for different ones of these counties. It's uh, my understanding that in Lee County, a lot of it was equipment-related, printers that jammed and, and that kind of thing. And in other counties, it were other problems. But It looks like one of the key problem areas that the state is going to have to address is people going into an election office the day before an election and casting absentee ballots. It seemed like that clogged up a lot of the offices because absentee ballots have to be, the signatures on the back of the envelope have to be checked against a signature on record in a computerized system, and that takes a long while, and you have to open them up and so forth. So we know that the Timing of absentee ballots coming in is one issue that we have to look at. Another will be the provisional ballots where uh, people are only allowed to cast their provisional ballot in the the precinct in which they're registered. A lot of confusion on that. Uh, And in other situations, the early voting, it looks like there's not enough locations for early voting sometimes. It causes a lot of clogging up of the system. So many different reasons, but It'll be incumbent upon the legislature to fix it as soon as possible because even though people don't want to hear this, 2014 is not that far away. And we'll have a certainly to have a very heated uh, gubernatorial race in 2014. Okay, what does this probe mean, really? What is the impact that we'll be seeing? The impact is that. You know, it's a it's a problem that needs to be fixed, and it's a very clear problem that needs to be fixed. Sometimes when things go wrong, we really don't know whether it's, you know, uh, been caused by multiple factors. But here we know that it's the election system and long lines and problems with counting that are what needs to be solved. So it's a little bit easier to find solutions when the problem is easily identifiable. The public is going to be very aggravated if this problem is not resolved quickly, and it will not reflect well on Republicans if the legislature and the governor don't get this fixed as soon as possible. It cannot turn out to be a partisan issue, or it will be damaging to the to the party in power, which is Republicans in Tallahassee. You've heard of gator hunting in Florida, but python hunting? It's called the 2013 Python Challenge, and it's being put on by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. During the challenge, the general public and Florida's python permit holders will look to see who can catch the longest and the most Burmese pythons. Florida's 89.1 WFTFM's Chris Peralta spoke with Diane Hurth of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission about the challenge and what the FWC is hoping the challenge will achieve. So, uh, first off, um, you know, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission has announced the uh, 2013 Python Challenge. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that. 
what it's about. Um, the Python challenge is about raising public awareness about the invasive Burmese python and its threat to the Everglades ecosystem, particularly native wildlife. It includes two public events in South Florida, one in January and February, coming up soon, uh, where people can come learn more about Burmese pythons and what they can do to help prevent invasive species in the Everglades ecosystem. And we are uh, kicking off a competitive harvesting of Burmese pythons, which the public can participate in. So why are you looking to raise awareness of the um, the Burmese python issue? I mean, they've kind of been around for um, in, in the state for a while. They've been a problem for the state. Um, what prompted the uh, desire to raise awareness now? Well, we really want to enlist the public. We, we would like them to participate. They will uh, need to go to pythonchallenge.org, and they, if they want to compete, they can read all about it, look at the rules. There's a required online training that's pretty simple. It's on the website. So this is to encourage people, if they want to think about being part of the competition, to harvest Burmese pythons to get involved. So there's that aspect. And we also think there's a lot of uh, great rewards from getting people to think more about um, the resource of South Florida and the Everglades ecosystem from the standpoint of invasive species. People definitely know when they see a big python, you know, discovered or documented in South Florida and may be generally aware of its spread, but we really hope to raise that level of awareness, get people to report exotic species, and also to not release exotic species into the wild. And how did the uh, the python issue become a, a problem for the state? I mean, pythons are not naturally uh, endemic to the state of Florida. How, how, how did they kind of like come about to, to be so prevalent here? Uh-huh. Right. Well, um, a couple of decades ago, they were they were part of the legal pet trade, and uh, either we think either people were releasing them into the wild when they got big. You know, you get a smaller python as a pet, Burmese python, and then it gets big, and people may have let them loose, and um, some may have escaped, either from you know pet owners or breeding facilities. There's some speculation it could have happened during Hurricane uh, Andrew. And is there like a sort of a situation that, or an idea as to how the Python problem might become contained? I mean, granted, you have the the Python challenge going on, but are there other efforts to kind of try to get the uh, the po- the Python population under control? Or- right, we have we do have ongoing uh, research and management efforts, and we're not um, the only one doing it. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission works with our partners, like University of Florida and. Um, some of the federal agencies work on that issue. You know, some of the pythons are on South Water, South Florida Water Management District land. So there, and there's a Everglades Cooperative Invasive Species Management Organization that works on these issues, the Nature Conservancy. So a lot of people are putting their efforts together. This is hopefully raising the public profile to show, yes, we're working on it, and we want everybody engaged in the effort and hopefully participating. Now, tell me a little bit about the, um, I mean, you, you mentioned that there a little bit of training is required to go hunt pythons. Mm-hmm. What what sort of risks or, or, or issues do typical people who have not been trained in how to capture pythons face? Well, we've got the training, so we are requiring that people take the training. Um, 
that is, at this point is, is what we're offering in terms of where they would look for the pythons, how they would identify them versus native snakes. And we do have some things in a toolkit to, you know, some of the tools that people will need to know or use when they're out there. Um, basically, you're out, you are out in the Everglades, so we expect people to do, use general rules of outdoor activities and being safe. We are concerned about safety. Okay. Now, um, you know, being up here in north central Florida, it's a little bit of a distance between here and the Everglades, but, um, I mean, is there, like, a, any impact that the uh, the python challenge and the python population really has up here? Well, occasionally invasive species like a python or boa constrictor, as you may know, are found further north. Uh, the, as far as we know, the population is concentrated in south Florida, the broader Everglades ecosystem. But then again, you know, people who are interested in that sort of harvesting python capture challenge, they could live in Gainesville and decide, hey, I want to try it out. I want to go down there, me and my friends, my, my buddies, and, you know, see if I can find and, and harvest a Burmese python. People go, you know, to areas to hunt and fish or to experience the outdoors. So we're not thinking it's just a South Florida um just for South Floridians. It's, it's for anyone interested who can, as I said, go to pythonchallenge.org, read about it, and, and see if they want to either capture, uh, harvest Burmese pythons, or participate in the public events, which we think will be really interesting. The Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010, but major reforms are yet to kick in. And many people are uncertain about the quality and cost of care under the new law. But as WMFE's Nicole Creston reports, for, more, for some local patients, the act is already bringing about changes. Nearly everyone in the country will be affected by the law's requirement to carry health insurance by 2014. So there's no shortage of potential patients with strong opinions about the Affordable Care Act. One of them is Orlando mom Kate O'Neill, who says that already health care reform has been a lifesaver. You know what? My daughter's alive because of the Affordable Care Act. O'Neill says before Obamacare, her daughter Caitlin aged out of the family's health insurance when she turned 22. But when the law was enacted in 2010, she went back on the family's plan, which means she was covered when she started feeling sick. And it ended up being MRSA, which I was like, oh my God, if she had let that go, you know, we might have lost her over something that is completely treatable, you know, if caught early, especially when caught early. MRSA, or MRSA, is a potentially fatal antibiotic-resistant infection. Caitlin is now 25 and healthy, and under Obamacare, she could stay covered for one more year. But there's a new concern for the family. O'Neill's health insurance from her former full-time job lapses in February. Right now, she falls between the cracks. She makes too much money to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to afford health insurance for her three children and herself. At least, she says, not until she's covered by the Affordable Care Act. So we're just kind of in limbo until then, trying to figure out what's going to work, what can we all do. Policy experts say O'Neill is not alone. Aaron Lieberman is a professor of health services administration at the University of Central Florida. He says the best part of the health care reform is it will ensure 32 million Americans that currently don't have health coverage. But Lieberman doesn't think the law goes far enough. It's a start down a very long road toward a universal system of health care coverage 
And that's something that I view as absolutely essential. Not everyone thinks universal coverage is the best solution, or even agrees on what that means, just as some people don't support the Affordable Care Act. Daniel Jones owns a small landscaping business in Orlando. He says the current health care system may need some changes to bring down costs, but it's not that bad. My daughter was born with a congenital heart defect, and uh, my insurance company has been wonderful about paying every single one of the expenses that's ever come up. Jones does not offer health benefits to his 12 employees, and under the Affordable Care Act, he still won't have to. It's only businesses with 50 or more employees that have to provide coverage or pay a fine. Still, Jones says, he's expecting his wallet to take a hit, along with everyone else's. I do know in my personal insurance, I've seen my premiums go up more in the last two years than they did in the preceding five years. That's attributed directly to the beginning stage of the Affordable Care Act. I expect to see a lot more of those things happen throughout the economy, so that will affect me. UCF healthcare expert Aaron Lieberman predicts there will be changes that ripple through the economy, but it's hard to say if costs will go up or down in the long run. He does expect the law to be a work in progress, much like Medicare, which began in 1966 and is still undergoing changes. But for Orlando mom Kate O'Neill, Obamacare's major changes can't come soon enough. I don't know everything that's going on. I just know that when it kicks in fully, I'll be able to get coverage again. And that will be extremely valuable to all of us. Florida lawmakers have to decide whether to set up and run the state's insurance exchange that will cover people like O'Neill or leave it up to the federal government. I'm Nicole Creston in Orlando. The Florida Supreme Court is deciding whether insurance companies can require policyholders to be questioned under oath in order to receive benefits from a personal injury protection or PIP claim. FPR's Regan McCarthy reports the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has asked the state court whether the practice is allowed under Florida law. Florida's had some trouble with personal injury protection or PIP auto insurance fraud, which has led to a number of efforts for cracking down on the issue. That's why Florida Supreme Court Justice Charles Kennedy says it makes sense that an insurer might want to question a policyholder who files a PIP claim. There's a lot of talk here, uh, what's in the case law, about all the fraud connected with PIP claims. And I think you'd have to be, you know, never, uh, you'd have to be from another planet not to be aware of that. Uh, And it just seems to me to be, uh, would be uh, a very strange thing for us to say Uh, that an insurer cannot take uh, a step such as this to help prevent the kind of fraud that is rife in this system. But the lawyer for the appellant, Juan Montes, says the question isn't whether the insurance company can ask policyholders to answer questions under oath, but whether that can be what's called a condition precedent, meaning if the policyholder refuses to show up, they lose their right to get PIP benefits. The case arose from a class action lawsuit against GEICO, but revolves around one woman who Montes says was willing to show up for GEICO's questioning. GEICO sent the woman a time asking her to come for the examination under oath, but she asked the company to reschedule. They ignored the letter, sent another request for a different date where they chose the date, time, and everything. They were sent another letter by the attorney saying, again, we're requesting that you reset it for for another date, time that's mutually convenient. They said... We're not paying PIP benefits. And that's something Justice Barbara Perriente says could have some far-reaching consequences. I mean, it's but a I big deal because if it's a you know, $100 bill and you, you make a decision, listen, I am not getting, I'm sick, I'm, not, I'm still aching from this accident, I'm not going to this office, but all I'll lose is 
the $50, I need to go when I'm a little stronger. But if you say you don't go, if you don't get out of bed and go, you lose all $10,000, that's a, a pretty significant forfeiture. The lawyer for Geico says she's not certain what would happen in a case like that, although she does say she suspects Geico might allow a person to file another claim, even if their first one had been denied because the person hadn't shown up for the examination. There's no deadline for when the Florida Supreme Court must rule on the issue. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Regan McCarthy. The holidays are a time to show love and kindness to family, friends, and strangers. But as the cold starts to creep in, there's a certain someone that needs a little attention, too. Your car. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Ryan Dumay has more on how to get your car ready for the winter season. With the cold weather kicking in, you want to make sure your car sounds like this and not like this. The sound of engine failure is one that most people are never ready or excited to hear. But in winter, you really don't want to get stuck in the cold due to car troubles. While there are many problems you can run into with your vehicle, Midas service manager Val Karnekia says one issue is more prevalent than others. Uh, the biggest problem is uh, battery. If it's not serviced, a lot of people don't think you have to service the battery, but you do. You have to keep the terminal lens clean and make sure it's full of fluid. A lot of batteries today are maintenance-free, so it's basically just keeping your uh, terminal lens clean and make sure your battery has a full charge. If a battery doesn't get charged, the electrolytes inside the battery turn to water, and then the battery will freeze. So if the uh, battery is fully charged, it's an electrolyte, it won't freeze. So you, you just need to maintain the vehicle. Karnakia also points out that heavy oil tends to get thick and settle at the bottom of motors when the cold weather hits. Using a lighter grade oil allows the car to run better and won't do as much damage to it. Tuffy's auto service manager, Fred Howard, says tire pressure is also something to take into consideration. You need to keep the tires up to full pressure based on the door sticker of the vehicle. When you have a cold day, you're going to get in the vehicle, they will have dropped two or three pounds, your tire pressure monitor light is going to go on. Now, in reality, there's nothing wrong at that point if you go somewhere right away and get the air pressure readjusted. But you don't want to drive on a low tire, the car won't handle correctly, and you can ruin the tire. Although here in Florida, cold weather can be considered something to laugh about, Howard says it's extremely important for people to care for their cars during this weather. Preventive maintenance is so important, and I understand the economy at the present time, but you're not saving money by not doing preventive maintenance. You're actually costing yourself a whole lot of money. You're taking a big risk. But as Howard mentions, the economic slump is getting the best of some people. Alachua County resident Loretta Rhodes says cold weather or not, she finds it hard to take precautions for her car. I don't have the surplus funds to go have my car checked out. I wait until something goes wrong or I have an indication of something going wrong before I go to a mechanic and have it looked at. So as you drive around and temperatures continue to drop, ask yourself, is your car ready for the cold weather? For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Ryan Dumat. Gainesville Harvest is a food pantry with a mission to help people get out of under the government's care and eliminate a necessity on food stamps that becomes ever more apparent during the winter months. Frances Leslie is the executive director of the pantry, and she says the organization, which has helped Alachua County residents for more than 20 years, really needs for the community to give a helping hand. 
in the wintertime when everybody's giving, we try to pack up to stack up our pantries around the county so that people will have food when they're attending to their uh, light bills because then that's when the real hunger shows. She says the legacy Gainesville Harvest has had in this county is an effort to help others get out of a rough patch. 21 years that we've been in uh, Feeding the Hungry, and our number one goal and our mission is to diminish the count of individuals actually on food stamps, insecurity of food in families, and to make sure that we also meet a cost of nutrition to the poor, because after all we do, we got to make sure that we keep them healthy. But what is needed is not necessarily labor. We have about 257 volunteers, and that doesn't count the students who come over and, and also the schools, schools that come over to volunteer. But instead, Leslie says they need a place to help people access the food. Because we do need drivers on the weekend. We need sites. Uh, we're going into hot meals. So right now we're in need of sites in the communities where, where people do not have, where people can walk uh, to get a hot meal. And we are, we are in need of churches, uh, social organizations, after school programs, just to be able to do that. Gainesville Harvest also has new programs in the works, mainly to teach the community to benefit from good nutrition, especially when it comes to children. We, we, we need fresh fruit. We, we, are, uh, we are doing two things coming out of the winter. We are trying to establish that nutrition program. It's because so many people are challenged uh, with so many uh, types of ailments. Like, we're still dealing with hypertension with our children. And fresh fruit, we're trying to get at least 25 companies to commit to at least one month of providing for an area where children can get fresh fruit and vegetables. Most people would never think of downtown Gainesville as a farming area, but one farm is making a difference in giving back to the community. For 89.1 WUFTFM's Lauren Verno has more. Porter's Community Farm is Gainesville's first urban farm donating fresh vegetables and fruits to St. Francis House. The Chestnut Hill Tree Farm donated over $500 worth of fruit and nut trees to the Porter's Farm this week. However, this is only the start. Porter's Community Farm Project Manager, Travis Mitchell, has already raised over $12,000 in donations toward this project. Mitchell says he's reaching out for the whole community to get involved with the farm. The whole idea is for it to be a, it's what's called Porter's Community Farm. It's really be somewhere people can engage and, and get involved. So we've been talking to a couple of people about trying to set up different youth programs and working at the community center and see if get some of those kids out once in a while. With getting the community involved, Mitchell knew it would be possible to feed the masses at St. Francis House. He says his biggest problem, though, was finding a large enough space. And, uh, we have another project at Downtown Farmer's Garden that's one of the county administration building. And I had donated some food to them before through that, but it's a much smaller garden. Um, and they, you know, they serve so many people there every day that I knew if we really wanted to provide something more they could use who'd need a, a larger space. For volunteer Sheila Payne, she says the most rewarding experience for her is giving these people fresh food while planting it herself. Providing people organic food. And you know, anytime, like I, in my own garden, I've just started harvesting snow peas. It's just thrilling, you know, to go out and pick your own food. It's, it's very cool. 
Sheila says the biggest problem with the shelters right now are the lack of fresh food. It was all canned vegetables. You know, I thought, what, what can we do? And the problem is, part of it is, a lot of organizations that used to give a lot of food are afraid now of being sued or something. So the food quality was kind of going down. She also says the people at the shelter do notice the difference between the canned and fresh foods that they will get from this farm. I think people can't, don't get there. So people want real food. You know, they don't want canned peas or canned corn. And, you know, it's hard to jazz up beans in a can. People really appreciate the, and I think with the fresh fruit, you know, it's just healthier. Project manager Travis Mitchell says the goal of the project is to give a ton back to the community, literally. Our goal this year was to donate, um, try to grow a ton of, of vegetables. So we'll see. We kind of got a little bit of a late start, and we're also going to be experimenting with trying to sell a few items, like growing some things for market, to sort of hopefully kind of create uh, enough money coming in that we can really make sure that the project can continue for indefinitely. Both Mitchell and Sheila are hoping with the help of volunteers and donations, they can help make this goal possible. To donate to Porter's Community Farm or volunteer, go to foginfo.org to learn more. For Florida's 89.1 WFT-FM, I'm Lauren Verno. When you think of a robot, R2-D2 may be the first thing that comes to mind. But the University of Florida's College of Engineering's guest media robot date gave the public a chance to see that the sky's the limit when it comes to what robots can do. Associate Director of the Machine Intelligence Laboratory Eric Schwartz say all, says although the robots created by UF students have gone on to win world championships in the past, this semester's bots are definitely the most captivating. This semester probably has more exciting robots. It's a small number compared to some semesters. We might have almost 30. This semester we only have 13 in the class, but we have some that are the most difficult or challenging in some ways. Among the more challenging and definitely more entertaining robots lies UF students Andrew Grace Invention. And it, came, it all came about thanks to his highly intelligent feathered friend, Pepper. But Gray didn't make the parrot mobile just for his bird's enjoyment. Our parrot, when he's left alone, screams. He, he actually shrieks and it's ear piercingly, even if you're several rooms away, it just really hurts. And he just keeps doing it and doing it and doing it. And so I thought, well, how can we fix it? So the first thing I did, what we normally do is spray him with a water bottle and it kind of shuts him up for a little bit. It doesn't really work that well. So we can't always be there when he's screaming. So I built a uh, voice activated or sound activated squirt gun that actually squirts him with water. And it worked really well at first. However, he started using it as a bird bath. And then he'd scream just to get squirted, and it just was ineffective, and he keeps screaming. Uh, so the next thing I tried was a rattler, and it's a, a drum that's on a stick, and it has two little beads on string. And you go like this, and it rattles. Well, I attach that to a motor, and I push a remote uh, button, and it spins that, and it rattles, and it really scared him the first couple times. But then he got used to it because he just kept screaming. And so I said, okay, well, what's the underlying issue here? What's the problem? The problem is, is he's not in the room with us. When he's in the room with us, he's, he's fine. So I thought, well, how can I get him around the house? Ph.D. Elon Eskenazi set out to prove that you can get more bang for your buck with this invention. So this is a uh, low-cost, EMG-controlled uh, prosthetic hand for uh, wrist disarticulation amputees. So it uses electrical signals from my forearm to control the, um, the hand. And it's got um, three muscles that I'm probing here, uh, one that flexes, extends um, another, the wrist and one that extends the fingers. And I use these to perform different actions on the robot. 
Short says he's always impressed with the great work produced by students like Gray and Eskenesi. He noted that the students made these inventions in just one semester and hopes that they will continue to work on their bots. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Sonica Dange. And I'm Luis Giraldo.